Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Good evening. I uh, didn't realize, Joe, that you were leading worship. I didn't get to work in a lyric from bands. I'm sorry. Normally when Joe leads worship and I preach, I sneak in like a band reference or a lyric to bands that we like, and I didn't get to do that today. Also, in case you're wondering, no, these are not hot dogs on my shirt. This shirt is art, but Joe likes to remind me that it looks like I'm wearing hot dogs. They are not hot dogs. Um, I really appreciated that confession. I, uh, just to be brutally honest with you guys, and some of you know that our family is just dealing with a lot right now. So I come this morning exhausted and emotionally drained and tired. Like we, you know, there's those Sundays where you like barely make it. And uh, man, if that's you, you're not alone. Uh, I hear you. So let's pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would be here now and um, reveal something good, beautiful, and true about God to us, something that we need. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for, um, for the blessing of being able to gather on a Sunday, not um, because we recognize that you are alive. God, um, I pray that you would meet us here. We lean in on your promise in the scriptures that when we gather like this, the Holy Spirit is present and this transcendent power is uh, here and at work to transform our lives, to reveal something amazing about who you are and the promises that you've made to us. So God, I pray that you would uh, use me in my weakness, that you would be made strong and mighty. For those here who are tired like me, um, I pray that you would uh, bring them a sense of peace and hope and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever wondered what authentic faith is? I have to imagine that if you are the kind of person that shows up on a Sunday at four o'clock, you're at least curious or exploring what it means to uh, have an authentic faith. And I think for all of us, we all desire to have the kind of faith that is vibrant and alive the kind of faith that empowers us to live lives with meaning and purpose, the kind of faith that is authentic enough to transform the way that we treat people in our lives, whether we like them or not, or the kind of faith that empowers us in tough times, in times of uncertainty or in times of suffering. This is the kind of faith that Hebrews 11 chapter 1 is talking about, and it's what we're going to explore today. But before we get into it, I just want to recognize something. 
And that is, is that we live in a time or in an age of unknowing and uncertainty. So a philosopher, Charles Taylor, says that we live in a time of cross-pressure. In other words, because uh, Western culture, because America has globalized and we live with a faith, but in the face of friends or family members or coworkers or neighbors that maybe believe something entirely different than us, the mere fact that we have faith in the midst of a diverse group of people that have different beliefs than us means that we at times question or have uncertainty of what we believe in. It comes with the territory. And this is unique to the time that we find ourselves living in. If you think about it, 1,500 years ago, that wasn't the case. People lived with a vibrant faith that was not as uncertain that we have today because everything around them affirmed what they believed in. So think about it like this. And as I thought about this illustration, my wife uh, told me to be careful because we don't have children's ministry today, so I had to be thoroughly careful. Uh, in the Netherlands, during the holiday season, they tell their children that a figure named Krumpus is a thing. Do you guys, have you guys heard of Krumpus? Okay, so for those of you who don't know who Krumpus is, Krumpus is like this character that works with Santa Claus, but instead of Santa like bringing you coal, Krumpus basically shows up a month before Christmas and like scares the bejesus out of all the bad kids, scares them into being good children. And if you're a kid in the Netherlands, your parents are telling you to be careful because Krumpus is coming. And when you go to a store, you see like signs that Krumpus is on his way. And if you turn on the television and you watch TV, you're going to see commercials warning you that Krumpus is there. In other words, everything around them is affirming that Krumpus is this character that's going to come and torture them emotionally. That is the type of authentic faith that people used to live in in the 1500s, and we don't have that kind of purity today. Again, we live in a time where I believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, but my neighbor may believe something totally different. And because of that, my faith isn't as firm as someone might have been in, in the uh, 1500s. Think about it like this. Because this is the challenge to us. In one ways, it's really good. In one ways, it's good because we are open to more information, which allows us to explore our faith and better understanding who God is. But in other ways, it creates a challenge. It's kind of like a, uh, visiting a buffet. Like I don't know if you guys ever been to Hometown Buffet. If you have, you don't need to go. It is, it's like the DMV opened a restaurant. Like there's, customer service is not a thing. It's not been cleaned in a while and there's lines for no reason. And the thing about buffets is like as as the uh, options increase, there's a reverse correlation in quality. And when you're at the buffet, if you've been there before, you know that at some point, like, you're walking back to your table with, like, five or six layers on your plate, and you know that something is terribly wrong when your taco is marinating in gravy from your mashed potatoes. Like, nobody leaves the buffet thinking to themselves, I made some really good decisions today. In that same way, our faith is kind of living in this time where we have this buffet of beliefs 
and it reduces a certain quality, a certain authenticity regarding what we believe. As the marketplace of faith has increased, so has our uncertainty, and with that, our anxiousness. Because to live and to believe with uncertainty comes anxiousness. So how can we fight against anxious uncertainty? How can we push past that cross pressure that Charles Taylor says existed? And what Hebrews is telling us is that what we need to do is anchor our faith in something that is real, something that is true. And we can do that in three different ways. We can do that by our understanding, our commitment, and our conviction. Or to say differently, to live a life of authentic faith takes our head, our hearts, and our hands. The way we think, what we love, and what we do. So take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 1 again. Let's start with the head. Faith is the assurance. That word assurance means confidence in that which has actual existence. And that last part is super important because you can have confidence in something that could possibly not happen. I've said this before, like I can have confidence that the Lakers are going to win, but that doesn't mean they're actually going to win. But having confidence in Jesus is different because Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He is alive and he promises to make his promises come true. But it's important to also recognize that faith is not just a blind leap in the dark. Having faith in God does not require blind faith. It requires reasonable faith. See, far too often we approach faith in God as something that we just feel or something that just seems right to us. But as you read the scriptures, man, it calls for a completely different kind of faith. It requires the faith from us that takes reasonable thinking. It requires wisdom. Just look at Proverbs, verse, uh, Proverbs chapter one, and notice how often it talks about the way in which we think. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear an increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise are their riddles. The fear of the Lord, this is the most important part, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. To follow Jesus is to use your mind, is to think, is to reason. It is not a blind leap in the dark. And there is certainly an outside view towards anybody of any religion, really. Uh, and this Washington Post quote sums it up perfectly. Somebody in the Washington Post once wrote that to be a Christian is to be poor, uneducated, and easy to command. Now, when that came out, it was really interesting, the pushback that this particular person had, because uh, in that moment, a bunch of people who are leaders in their fields of multiple sciences, including biology and astronomy, came out and said, well, what about me? I'm this award-winning scientist, and I am a Christian. And it's true. If you look back throughout history, uh, some of the wisest people, I would argue, that have ever lived have come from a Christian perspective. 
Augustine is often recognized as one of the fathers of Western thought. Thomas Aquinas, Soren Kierkegaard, uh, or even today we have Francis Collins, who leads the Human Genome Project and is an award-winning scientist. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, we have to admit that a lack of thinking also comes from inside the church. But it's an adoption, I think, from culture. I mean, the fact that we uh, might repeat phrases like, well, that's my truth, or that's true for me, but it may not be for you, or this thing is really connecting to me right now. Like, if you stop and think about what those words mean, they don't make a whole lot of sense. I don't get a chance to own truth, right? Like, I can't tell you that two plus two equals 10, and so therefore you owe me $10, not four. The only person that can do that is the IRS. That's two government jokes today, unintentionally. But Nick's here, so he's pretty, pretty pumped. Yeah, yeah, that was good timing. Uh, Timothy Keller says this, you can't have a relationship with God unless you believe in God. So do you believe in him? It's not good enough to say it's true for me or it's connecting for me right now. Before you come to him, you must know that it is true, the truest thing that you've ever known. So the point here is that faith is something real. And we believe the thing that anchors our faith is Jesus Christ himself, a man who lived 2,000 years ago and claimed to be God and then died on the cross and resurrected three days later and spent the next 40 40 days interacting with nearly 500 eyewitnesses. And it's his life, death, resurrection, ascension that grounds and roots our faith in reality. It's his life that affirms the fact that God is perfectly loving, perfectly powerful, and perfectly good, which means that we can have a basis for all the things that matter most in our lives. You see, our faith comes with reasonableness, thoughtfulness. We don't just have a faith in in an idea that is meant to make us feel good. We have a faith rooted in reality. That is good. But it should also affect the way in which we go about our daily lives because as we focus on who God is and his promises for us, then it should inform the way, like I said before, the way we treat one another, the way we overcome pain and suffering. Like, well, it's like this. It's important to not just believe in God, but to believe God. Believe what he says about himself, what he promises about your life. And that's the best thing about this is that when we pray, we don't, we don't pray to a God because we need a placebo effect. We, play to a, we pray to a God who is listening. We pray to a God who says to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I am with you. Right now, there's a popular, a popular product called a weighted blanket. Have you guys seen these? They look awesome. One of my kids want one. We're going to get one. They look super helpful. But basically, the idea here is that, like, you were actually meant to, like, fall asleep next to somebody. And, like, the weight of another person lowers anxiety levels and is meant to make you spend more time in REM sleep. But for some of us, we run hot, and so cuddling can be hard. 
Or for others, you just don't have maybe somebody to cuddle up next to you. And so the weighted blanket is here to make us sort of feel better. It's, it's a way to stimulate that thing. Faith in God is not a weighted blanket, though. Because a weighted blanket is not actually a substitute for feeling uh, the comfort and warmth of someone that you love and someone that cares for you. Right? Could you imagine if my kids were like having a rough night of sleep and, I was like, and they were like, hey, come cuddle me. And I was like, ah, just grab the weighted blanket. That's not a valid substitution. My point is, is that when we pray to God, we're not asking for a weighted blanket. We're praying and a real God is hearing us. We are entering into a conversation with someone who loves us. The more we know him, the more we'll begin to believe and trust him. I also want to talk real quick about the reality that sometimes churches, because we're talking about knowing God and using your mind to think through the things of God. And I just want to recognize that, um, at least in my experience, churches aren't always welcoming to tough questions, to questions of uncertainty or doubt. Uh, some of you know I was an atheist when I became a Christian and I started going to a church and uh, I, had a, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't, like, I didn't even do church on Easter Sundays or Christmas, and so I had a lot of questions. And in my personal experience, uh, the conversations that I had left me wanting. Most of the time, I would get in front of somebody who like, read a Lee Strobel book and memorized something that they read off the internet, and they would like, hand that to me like a, like a rhetorical pill and be like, there you go, now you should be fine. But like, they weren't actually interacting with the questions that I had, and it just, it was frustrating and it was hard. And let me just say, if that's you, if that's where you're at today, maybe because you're exploring Christianity for the first time, you haven't been to church in a while, or if you have questions, or maybe even you're a seasoned Christian and you just have like these lingering questions, one of our goals at this church has always been to make a safe and comfortable place to explore those kind of questions with people. And I can say from my experience, thankfully, by the grace of God, I was able to find a group of individuals that were willing to take the time and invest in me. Far too often, uh, doubt is categorized as an enemy of faith. And James K. A. Smith says that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but a companion to it. So I bring this up to say, like, if, if you have those questions and you've always felt uncomfortable to talk about them, to think about them, to explore them. My fear is that oftentimes those questions just kind of get bottled up and you move around with your Christianity with them. And slowly but surely it starts creating this pressure. And at times that pressure can almost explode into just outright skepticism. That's not what we want here. And that's not what the scriptures call for. When real questions are met with real answers, thinking and reason happen. And when thinking and reasoning is done right, what God promises is that we will discover something about him. So faith is a head knowledge. It's something that we can know. But faith also leads to action. Look at the next part of the verse. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not ideas in action, Sorry, faith is not ideas and inaction, but ideas and action. In action, as my wife likes to remind me, speak louder than words. If you want to know what somebody believes in, what they truly believe in, because oftentimes we will say we believe in one thing, but then we act very differently. 
Often, if you want to know what somebody believes in, where they have their hope and their faith, don't listen to their words. Watch what they do. Watch how they treat their family members. Watch how they treat the people they love and the people they don't love. Watch what they do in times of suffering and uncertainty. That will often lead us to better understand what they believe in. Like, I can say that God is sovereign over suffering. I can say that he, uh, that he loves me and he wills good in my life. But as soon as something disrupts my ideals and my plans, do I take it all upon myself? Because in that moment, then I believe more in myself than in what God says. Faith must motivate us towards action. James 2 says it like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The difference between, ultimately, it's not saying that you have to earn your faith. What he's saying is that there are two different kinds of faith. One of them is vibrant and authentic, and the other one is dead. And I love that in chapter 11, after the verses that we read, we actually go into what often is called the hall of faith. And I actually, I'm, I don't, I'm not a big fan of that phrase because it makes it sound like these people are like these incredible heroes without, you know, without ever having fallen short. But if you go and you read the list of people, uh, it's far from that. I mean, on that list is hesitant leaders, liars, murderers, prostitutes, and drunkards. And the point here is that God is not in the business of making good people great. As a matter of fact, he takes the broken, the weak, and the ones who know failure, and he says, give me them and watch as I use them for my glory. Faith is ultimately for those who fall short. Just look at, look at Noah, who, spoiler alert, turns out to be a drunkard. Verse 7, by faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So first off, Noah acts because of events as yet not seen, or as yet seen, that is faith. And then the other thing that it says is that this, this guy who clearly has fallen short because he turns out to be a drunkard, but his faith saves his household. Like your faith can affect your family. And then it says that he condemned the world. And that doesn't mean like he raised up his moral pitchfork and like boycotted the next company that crossed him. Ultimately, what it's getting at to, what it's alluding at is that his life stood in contrast from the lives of the people around them. And for some, like his family, they gravitated towards him because he was a reflection of the goodness of God. But for others, they were... They were condemned. They were pushed away by his, by his reflection of the truth of God. My point here is that in order for us to live in authentic faith, we can't, all, we can't just think, we can't just know. That knowing also has to lead to action. It has to lead to doing. Our faith is not just internal and personal, but external. 
Matthew 5, 16 says it like this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So faith is in the head. Faith is actionable with our hands. But faith is also something that happens in the heart or what we hope for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. James K.A. Smith, I've mentioned him earlier, he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And in it, he coins this phrase. You are what you love, but you might not love what you think. So we talked about the, the, the thinking, the knowing, and we talked about, talked about the doing. But have you ever noticed that at times in our lives, what we know doesn't always lead to the action steps that we expect it to? Why is that? Why is there a gap between what we know and what we do? Jamie Smith would say that it, the difference between those two things is what we love. So let me give, me give you an example. I know how to be healthy. Like I know how to have a six pack, it's been never. I know how to live a healthy life, right? But I don't always live a healthy life. Like I know how to be healthy, but I don't do the things that require me to be healthy. The gap between what I know and what I do is my love for breakfast burritos. See, but when James K. Smith talks about it, he's talking about something much deeper than that. Our love runs much deeper than the things that we can see, experience, or know on the outside. What we really love, the things that like propel us for us, propel us forward are the things that are deeply embedded inside of us. It's our longings. It's the, it's the motor that moves us forward. And it's running mostly in the background. Most of the time, we're not aware of the things that we truly love or the things that we truly long for. And he argues that our loves are not directed by our thoughts, but by our habits. You see, every single person, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, every single one of us has habits that shape our hearts. And a habit that shapes your heart is called a ritual or a liturgy. And in, unless you're incredibly intentional with your habits, we don't normally decide these habits. They are decided for us. By simply living in America, in California, in Orange County, many of our daily habits are given to us, which means that our hearts, our wants, our loves are being shaped by the default rhythms of our culture. And our hearts act ultimately as a compass for our lives. Like we are all, as human beings, we are all on a journey. And this journey is for ultimately the good life. And what you think the good life is, is based on where your heart lies or the way in which your heart has been shaped. So you can see that there'd be a problem here. Because if our heart is being shaped by things that we have no control over, then our hearts might be misaligned. Like if you think about your heart as a compass, Okay, if, if it's aligned with the things of God and the promises of God, then it'd be aligned with true north. But if it's not aligned with the things of God, then it's off kilter for a bit. So Kel, Kelly and I love sailing. We leave out of, uh, one of our favorite things to do is to leave out of Marina del Rey and go to Isthmus, which is this little cove on Catalina Island. And the way that you get there, the way that you make sure that you get there is that you set yourself in a particular direction on the compass. But if that compass is off by, let's say, seven degrees, uh, and it's a cloudy day, over 27 miles, 
that means that not only will we not get to the right cove, we might miss the island entirely. So in order for us to have a vibrant, authentic, and meaningful faith, we need to have a heart check. We need to make sure that our hearts are aligned with God and his promises. In order to do that, we need to become more intentional about our life liturgies. We need to take a survey of our lives and see in which way we can disrupt the regular rhythms of this present age and realign ourselves back with true north, with God's promises. So tonight, ask yourself, is your heart aligned? Take a survey of your life, of your liturgies. What habits do you have? Do you have daily habits that lead to a life of authentic, vibrant faith? A life of confidence and joy and peace and power. A life that glorifies your creator and brings you everlasting joy. Have you set your heart on true north? We, have, we, we, we are discovering that in order for us to live in authentic faith, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, by God and the Holy Spirit, we need to know, we need to do, and we need to love. And in order for us for, to love the things of God, we need to align our lives, our habits, our rituals to point our hearts towards him. That's actually what you see in Hebrews. Uh, the examples that Hebrews gives us is basically an example of all these people who aligned their hearts towards the things of God. I'm going to read Hebrews 13 for you and just listen the way in which there was a misalignment. They could have aligned their hearts towards something that wasn't of God, but they kept their focus on something else entirely. Here's what it says. These all died, these people, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return, to misalign their hearts. But as it is the desire, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Much of the journey of following Jesus is closing the gap between what we know we should love and what we actually love. I think back to the moment that Peter, that, that Jesus asked Peter three times. Remember the question that he asked him? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's almost like that question, do you love me, was a way in which uh, Jesus was asking Peter, is your heart aligned with who I am and what I have made promises of? In closing, the verse says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. That could be a little intimidating, but we have to remember what Ephesians says, which is this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one may boast. For we are his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that in them we might walk. This living, vibrant faith is not ultimately 
something that you can reach for. It is a gift that is given to you. Jamie Smith points out that Augustine uh, mentions church as, he, he uses church references as like church is a hospital. And so if it's true that faith is a gift, then you can say that God has gifted us with new hearts. And any time that you receive a new heart, you go through heart surgery, you, there's a time of rehabilitation, right? You can't just go out and live the life that you were living before. You have to rehabilitate and then you make adjustments to your life. And so in much of that same way, sometimes uh, our liturgies, our way of living, the things that we do and the things that we think are ways in which we, we are rehabilitating our hearts and refocusing on the things of God. What's great too is, is about the head, heart, and hands. The way we think, the way we love, and the way we do is they tend to be a feedback loop. What I mean by that, if you find yourself ever just disengaged or, or feeling like your, your faith is uh, encumbered by something, take a look. Are you setting your mind on the things of God? Your love's on the things of God? And are you moving forward empowered by God and, his, and the Holy Spirit? In closing, I mentioned earlier that uh, faith in this day and age can be like a buffet line of food. One of the liturgies that God offers to us is that of communion, which unlike the buffet line, has substance for us, a spiritual substance. We take it every week here at church, and I love that we do that. So when you take it today, I encourage you to think back and remember that God, that Jesus uh, said that that bread was his life broken and his blood spilt for us. Allow that to be a type of liturgy and a communion that realigns your hearts onto God's promises for you. And let's celebrate together that grace, that faith is God's gift to us. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.